I'm Dr. Donald Guy Generals, president of the Community College of Philadelphia, and you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. Dr. Donald Generals runs the largest institution of higher education in Philadelphia. The Community College of Philadelphia has just under 30,000 students, all aiming to earn a two-year associate's degree, possibly to transfer to a four-year college, possibly to get a job right away. Dr. Generals has seen it all, having been educated at William Patterson and Rutgers Universities, receiving certificates in education and leadership at Harvard and Cornell, and having worked at Mercer County Community College, the former for-profit Catherine Gibbs Schools, SUNY Rockland, and Passaic Community College. Our discussion was wide-ranging, from the high and continually rising expense of college, the future of higher learning, the current generation of student, the skills needed to succeed, and successful leadership. We spoke at his office at the Mint Building for 45 minutes, which is quite long for a podcast interview, but if you listen, I think you'll agree it was worth it. Dr. Donald Generals, right now in the True Philadelphia Podcast. Here with Dr. Donald Generals, the president of the Community College of Philadelphia, and we're seeing a brand new school year start and I'm wondering if you are like teachers in public schools where you're counting down 180 days. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, 180 days, 8 months before we go back to Fridays off. (laughs) Um, This is a great time of the year. Um, It's exciting. The energy at the the campus is palpable. Um, I don't know that you know beyond this campus, we also have three regional campus centers around the campus so I've had the opportunity to go to all three and in each case, um, students are excited, the faculty are excited, you know, the weather is great, so... Way down with books, walking around, getting to class. Books, you know, the, the lines are minimal. <laughs> um, typically, this time of year, you have a lot of lines and a lot of uh, anxiety about trying to get sure. through the process, but I think we've been able to uh, minimize that. And students are in class, and things are actually starting to settle down now. This is, we're going into our third week. We actually have another semester that will start in about three, three and a half or four weeks, our 10-week semester. So, yes, we're very excited. I want to talk in general terms about college and its expense. And I know uh, here at the community college, you're at the lower end of cost, and I think that you would probably tell me you're at the higher end of value. But generally, and this is a question that parents and everyone else always ask all the time, and I think no one's really cracked it because they keep asking the question, why is college so expensive? That's a good question. I think um, the colleges that are expensive have a lot of history, a lot of years, um, they have accrued cost over those years. And then I think the competition to try to provide students with, you know, what I would refer to the Disneyland experience. You know, there's the a food, lot. The food, exactly. the athletic there's facilities. There's superlatives that, you know, that, not superlatives, but, you know, extras that really have very little to do with education. And um, I think that's part of it. And I think, um, you know, the costs are real. You know, you have salaries. You have contracts that you have to that you have to adhere to, um, the cost of equipment, the cost of technology. Um, you want to keep pace with the, with the technologies that are there. You want students exposed to the best technologies, and those techno- technologies cost, and the same is true with the community college. Um, as we move more and more into the career and technical fields of study, um, those costs can be prohibitive if you don't find ways to, to support them um, through the various channels that we have. So the costs are real. You know, you have salaries that are real. Um, the environment, the dorms, the food courts, and all of those things, the, the prices add up. With all of that said, I do think there's 
Um, there's an element of um, in inflation that goes on with higher education. I think some of those costs can be contained and some colleges are starting to do that. Um, and I think eventually it's going to be probably the biggest disruptor in higher education. Yeah, I want to talk about that word yeah. disruption. And before we get to that, the one thing you didn't mention that a lot of people think is one of the biggest drivers in the inflationary cost of education is the wide availability of federal loans, mm -hmm. which have a lower interest rate, although, and a lot of people don't realize this, in a bankruptcy, you cannot erase a, a loan for education. But because it's so easy to borrow, doesn't that give a lot of these universities, colleges, an excuse to keep jacking up the price higher and higher? I, I believe it does. Um, I think um, parents and um, advocates for students are becoming are beginning to get wise to that. Um, right now, the debt is 1.3 or 1.4 trillion dollars, and on average, it's about 37 thousand dollars a year for per student across the country. And I think people are becoming more and more aware of community colleges and the cost and our ability to transfer students into these cost-prohibitive institutions whereby they will have saved at least two years of those tuition costs. Sure. So yes, I do think there that there was an unlike, uh, uh, you know, that um, there was a license to continue to jack those prices up because they knew that the revenue source for students was limitless. But you think um, it's coming around now? I think it's coming around. I think it eventually will balance itself out. I don't think it's fashionable to have the highest tuition <laughs> in the country anymore, where at one point it was, you know, people. What about, I've heard stories of some schools where they would lower the tuition and their admissions rates would go down too because people are like, oh, well, if this one isn't ex as expensive as that one, then it must not be, it's as good. Exactly. Um, you know, it's like, Buying like a car. anything else. I was <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. You know, people, there is sort of a natural proclivity to believe that there's value in the, there's value and, and cost and, and, the, and the highness of the price. And I think people are beginning to realize that that's not the case. And you can look at the bare numbers. Um, right now, half of all the undergraduates in the country go to a community college. Um, I think I'd like to believe that's because they recognize the value of the education that they're going to get, and they ultimately will. But I think most of it has to do, or a lot of it has to do with it recognizing the cost. And there is no real value added in going necessarily to an institution of higher ed that's going to, you know, cost seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, well, let's let's give an example here, a real example. It's about eleven thousand to get an associate's degree, right. and that's for the entire that's year, the right? Years. All right, so uh, for the two years. Well, an associate's degree. Uh, associate's degree, and so 11000 per each year. No, you're 11000 for the entire. Okay, so 11000 that's two years. And then you go down the street to Drexel University. Right. A single year, $70,000. The cost disparity is enormous, and you cannot tell me that the quality is that different, too. Right. The relevant quality, you know. I love John Fry. He's a great friend of mine, so I have to be careful what I say <laughs> to my colleagues around, around, the, um, around the city. But th I guess my answer to that is that, in a very practical sense, that student who will pay $11,000 here, if they're a good student, they can get into Drexel. And we, because we do have articulations with Drexel, then they'll get a scholarship and they'll be a rising junior when they go to Drexel. Um, so you know, I'm not going to debate whether the calculus <laughs> they get here is you know, is qualitatively equal to the calculus they'll get at Drexel. I believe it is. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be in business because we're, we're measured by the same accreditors. We're all regionally accredited. So we have to maintain the quality. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's pretty self-evident. And I think students are getting it more and, and more quickly than the professionals are getting it, you know, the, the disparity in the cost. 
Um, it's, they're it's the ones who carry around this they're debt. They're the ones who carry leave. around the debt. And, you know, as quiet as it's kept, students are quite, um, they're, they're quite intelligent. They, and they're they, vocal. And they're vocal. <laughs> and they vote. And they understand the world around them. And especially our students who have to overcome so many impediments, you know, just to get through basic life's circumstances in the worlds that they come from. You know, they're very savvy and they're very wise in their ways. And so they recognize the difference in those costs. And, um, you know, they're looking for a quality education. They're not looking for name recognition or they're not looking for, um, you know, a trophy on their, their shelf. Yeah, to, to the some people think the bumper sticker can be a driver and maybe more so with the parents like, hey, I go here, look right. at me. How much of that do you think is involved? I think, that, I think that's a lot. You know, it's... You know, it's the flags on the walls, the Michigan University, it's the Stanford. You know, there's, there's certain symbolisms behind the schools and the institutions. They're great institutions, don't get me wrong, and they've got a lot of rich history to them, and they've produced a lot of great individuals. Um, but I think higher ed, as we know, is really changing into something, something other than it was even 50 years ago. Um, community colleges have come around roughly 50, 55 years ago. There are some that are much older, but for the most part, we're, you know, we're in our nascent stages. And I think that's driving the changes in higher education, whereby the top tier universities are no longer going to be able to continue to, you know, to command the prices that they command, because ultimately it's, all, it's, it's a large part of their revenue is driven by tuition. And they're going to have to change. So you see that happening in Pennsylvania right now with the public, with the um, public. The state schools. schools. The state yep. schools. Um, they have serious enrollment problems, and I believe a large part of that has to do with the costs that they're placing on, on, on their tuition, and students are choosing to come to community college. They have other choices. A middle-class student can't necessarily go to some of those state schools, Cannot Westchester. Go. That's right. They, they can't, you know, Westchester happens to be one of the ones that's doing okay, but some of the ones in, in the and more they charge middle, the most. that's right, <laughs> in the more, re, you know, regional middle areas, they're, they're, they're struggling. And it's, you know, I don't want to say it's a crisis, but it's getting to the point where it's a crisis. Something has to be done. Should community college be free? Yes. Who's going to pay for it? I think that um, that same question was asked back in 1919 when people asked the same question about high school. Who's going to pay for it? I think it's a public good. We have to figure out a way to reorder our priorities and consider community colleges as part of a K-16 model of education. Um, I think it's, you know, I don't want to say it's effectively free now, but given the, num the amount of financial aid that, um, that students can receive, and in most, in a lot of states have last dollar tuition um, scholarships, we have a last dollar scholarship, there are opportunities where they can um, come and not, you know, not pay anything. They can get it through. essentially should be just 13th and 14th grade. Um, I don't want to say that because that has a negative <laughs> connotation. It is higher education. It is college. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a continuum from, high, from, 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 the, um, from secondary school into, into higher ed. But that's not all we do. As you know, that's probably maybe half, maybe two-thirds of what we do. You know, a large portion of, we do, of what we do um, has to do with the returning adult. You know, students that, that were out in the workplace or that were at one of these four-year institutions and didn't do well and now are trying to restart their educational experience and they come here. So we have you know, a lot of part-time students, we have evening students, we have working parents, we have an online division. Um, so it's not just you finish high school and you come to college, although we do have a, a, a large portion of that. We're much more comprehensive in terms of the populations that we serve. Um, we are invo involved more and more in dual enrollment. So a lot of students that are still in high school are coming to us taking college um, level credits. Last year we graduated, I believe the number was nine or ten students from Mass um, High School who actually got their college degree before they, um, 
finish their high school degree. We graduate in May, so they got their college degree. And that's putting the cart before the horse. Right. Well, you know, that it's changing. Higher ed, as we know, is changing. And if you look at the history of higher ed, it has always changed. And I think we're in the throes of a change now. We're moving into a new epoch of what higher education is and what it will represent. Uh, we have we have a um, middle college program with Parkway, Parkway Central. Um, those students started in the ninth grade. They're now juniors, and when they graduate. They'll, when they graduate high school, they'll also receive their um, associate's degree from here. So it's changing. And it's not just here. It's changing around the world. You know, if you look at the literature on higher education in, in Great Britain, you know, there's the, um, the, the Bologna study whereby this whole notion that you have to do four years of high school before you can start college is just being eradicated. So I'm in an industry, the media industry, that is still experiencing massive disruption, disruption. Uh, social media, iPhones, mm -hmm. the availability of information on the internet, uh, the you know, newspapers are dying across the country. Uh, some say that it's creating news deserts out there. It's having negative effects. Education is totally being disrupted right now, but not to the extent I think that media is. So maybe we can start the conversation on that this way. How much should a college experience be virtual, and how much should it be in person, in buildings, face-to-face -face with teachers? I think that's a relevant, que a relevant question in that um, the demand for education is changing. So it depends on what, what, your, um, what your desire is. Not all industries require a four-year degree or even a two-year degree. Um, not all modes of education or teaching and learning have to occur in a classroom. So. I think what we're seeing now is the demand for education is moving away from what the traditional structures have been. And there's enough, there's enough demand for um, innovative means for um, innovative and um, creative ways to provide learning, um, learning based on knowledge that you need to know as opposed to just this sort of broad notion of, of what constitutes an education. And I think there are enough students who are voting with their feet in those directions. So you have online instruction, you have MOOCs, you have virtual, um, virtual um, colleges and universities. Um, you have colleges and universities. We, we are a microcosm of that disruption that you're talking about because there are some traditional professors and faculty who will argue that it all has to occur in, in a brick and mortar setting um, versus those who believe we can extend it by way of, of, of virtual um, um, teaching and learning. So it sounds that like argument. what you're saying is we can make the college experience tailor-made to the individual, exactly. and we need to be flexible in how we can deliver it. Exactly. I think, you know, the, su the, the supply is driven by the demand. Students are looking for a means to get into a profession, to get to a job. Those professions and jobs are now, um, Kate, they're now responding to the notion that you don't have to have a you know, four years of, sure, of, sure. of an education. What we want you to, to, to know for this job is this, this thing. So it really is about competency-based learning. It's about, in some cases, prior learning. It's about what you know in order to be able to do your job, in order to step into your profession, as opposed to what type of degree that you have. That's becoming more and more um, of the, um, the reality in, 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 in this world that we live in. And so as that grows, of course, institutions are beginning to provide more and more of that supply. So for example, we have you know, micro-credentials um, in our workforce space. Um, not all tech companies need a, need a person who has a, a AS degree in computer science, but they may want someone 
who understands um, some skills, machine learning, for yeah. example, or someone who has a, a fair grasp of you know some some levels of um, artificial intelligence. <laughs> you know, so we can pull that out of the curriculum, which we do, and, and prepare them for those particulars. We have individuals who have degrees already, in one of the social sciences or you know. I don't want to disparage English <laughs> as a professional. I'm an English major. All right, so there you go, and you're doing <laughs> journalism now. And they're able to come to us and get the very specific, narrowly focused skills that they need in order to get a job in communications, or nurse, in our case, it's nursing. Sometimes it's accounting. Um, so it's we're moving away from this notion that a, a college degree is the driving force. It's the skills that you have and that you need that are becoming more and more of the driving force. I always joke with people that I became an English major because I understood the language. <laughs> there you go. I, I was easy. a political science major. <laughs> that it was my minor. To, had nothing to do with higher education, but you kind of find your way. Yeah. I, yeah. I think with English, I mean, you, you learn how to read, comprehend, and you learn how to write. And writing is such an important, it's very important for my industry, but it's such an important thing that you can do right. in just about every other industry. And writing ever. drives your thinking. It enables you to be creative. Um, so I don't mean to belittle the importance I, of I general education, because <laughs> that is important. And I think creative educators can find ways of integrating the two. You know, the very narrowly focused skills along with the sort of general education, quantitative, qualitative thinking that you have to have. Because ultimately, you have to be a good thinker. You know, we, we're n we don't want to just train people to turn a widget. We want them to be able to have the, the skill sets to do that, but also the mindset to be able to understand when um, you know that particular job changes or when you know it's time for you to you know create some type of stackable credential journey towards another professional another profession or field one more thing about disruption what has not happened yet in this disruption of education that you foresee happening in the next couple of years that maybe is not really on anyone's radar screen um, in, a, in a wide scale way I think it's going to be probably in the in the world of virtual um, virtual education. Um, I think artificial. You're talking about holograms. Holograms, exactly. Really, I think, I hologram think teachers. Hologram teachers. You know, you open up a software package <laughs> and the educator pops up and you have your your, your very own classroom. Um, I do think that's the case. I think the, the virtual reality world, VR, yeah, virtual reality world is becoming um, very very prominent in education now. And I think it's just a matter of time before it gets separated from right. the, the institutions. And um, you get you know. Tupac be the professor. He's famously a hologram for a concert. Exactly. And, exactly. I, and I, I'm, I'm not exactly joking about that because maybe a class is more interesting with a virtual professor that may be a celebrity who may have been able to record a hologram. And then you and can listen. create the environment. You know, you can have classmates around you, and you have the professor there, and. There's real learning objectives, and it's all right there in your, your house. Um, I think that's a possibility. I don't, I don't think it's going to be the, the, you know, the, the, the totality of higher education mm -hmm. because ultimately people, part of the educational experience is interacting with your peers and your colleagues. Sure. And you know, whether that's in a chat room or somewhere, you need to be able to speak with individuals. But I do think there's a real possibility. Um, and in large part, you, you kind of see it happening now with YouTube and some of these, these other media whereby you can learn things in a sort of virtual reality um, setting. That may not be the classic definition or of what virtual reality is, but it's in many ways same, 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 same thing, yeah. yeah. Are we trying to entertain this generation that's in college too much? Um, I feel like everyone has to be entertained to, to pay attention to anything nowadays. I think, I believe education should be fun. 
I think when you, I, I think it should, I think you should have an opportunity to experience the, um, the fun parts of professional life. Um, it's not all doldrums, late nights with just you and, the, and a light. Um, I do think there are parts of our humanity that require that we have some outlet for fun and expression. And to the extent that we're teaching the whole student, we want them to have a whole, whole life experience that includes valuable educational opportunities and objectives. Um, I think it's a good thing. Now, do we do it too much? Which was your question. <laughs> I think that varies. I think some schools do. Um, I think, I think, you know, and I have to be careful in saying that. I think the idea that you have to go off on campus and have the party life with, you know, the fraternities and the sororities and things, which is something I never had, um, is not necessarily the equivalent of a college experience. And I think in that that sense. You could argue that it's it's too much, that it's a distortion of reality. And the public opinion on that type of lifestyle college definitely is turning, wouldn't yeah, you agree? Yeah, I would I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly and, and it's dangerous. I mean we've just seen the tragedies that have happened in higher education usually happen when eighteen year olds who are way too young and I'll sound like the old curmudgeon grandfather, to be off on their own drinking and partying with no no oversight and no supervision. And in, in most cases, there, you know, theoretically, there's RAs and there are people there. But by 18, you've become pretty You're savvy. That's right. Yeah. And you can do many things on your own, and, and you can get around whatever supervision they've, they've put in place. And um, I, don't, I don't think that extreme, and I want to qualify by saying those are the extremes, are really good for higher education or educational experience. And what happens often, and we see it often, students go out, they party for a year, they get no grades. They've wasted about fifty to sixty thousand um, dollars. In the best case scenario, they haven't defaulted on their loan, so they can't come to us, and we can kind of restructure and resalvage. But in most cases, they've defaulted on their loan, so now they can't even get financial aid. And they can't even. The come setback to us. is enormous. It's enormous. So that that's ten, fifteen years that they've wasted because of that one year of unsupervised <laughs> partying. Basically, this, this comes up. This idea of snow plowing parents are you familiar with these ter that term or lawnmower parents this is the idea yeah, that, that they pl like plow through everything so that they there's no chance of the child to fail and then when the child gets to college they have no idea what to do do you see this happen when you have freshmen come in we do we we do um and we you know there are FERPA rules uh, we we put a stop to it where we can when, when the parent steps over the line and wants to advocate I'll use the more <laughs> advocation yes. for the student, for their, their child. And I get it. You know, my wife's a little bit of a, you know, helicopter mom, and I have to tell it, you know. You That's know. the level below right, the right, snowplow right, right. and the exactly. lawnmower. Yeah. So now, right. So, but the reality is you're right. They're not doing them any, um, any service by eliminating the, the hurdles, the barriers that they're going to have to navigate and the problems that they're going to have to solve on their own. Why do parents um, do that? I think Other it's than they love their children. I think it's I mean. the extension of the helicopter models. <laughs> They've just grown into this, and no one, and, you know, at the K-12, they're allowed to do that. You're expected to do that. I mean, there are, there are differences, so you're expected to advocate. So, you know, we, we see that often in, um, you know, students with some level of disability, some level of challenge. You know, at K-12, parents are, they're on it. They're, you know, they want to know what the accommodation is, who's providing the accommodation. They'll sit in the classroom. But here, you cannot do that. The student has to advocate out by, on their own. 
And so we find students who've never done it, have no idea how to do it, and now they're lost in this big environment and just don't have the fortitude to be able to advocate on their own. And so we do have counselors that help them along the way, help them to make the transition. Um, but we fight against the parents who are still there and think they can just come in and plop down and walk. Sure. You know, I mean, the extremes, they, you know, we, we kind of allow it. But the student has to advocate for themselves. Yeah. And um, when you go to college, it's complicated because you have financial aid, you have registration, you have to schedule your own time, you have to, you, have you know, to sleep. You have, yeah, you have to sleep, you have to balance your time, you have to figure out when you go into the library. And um, nobody's going to hold your hand. So we don't hold hands, we provide pathways and opportunities and support. Um, but you ultimately have to advocate for yourself. And the student that hasn't had that experience struggles. On the other side of the coin, do you think whether it's a, a school at the high school level or a college or a business bringing a young person in, do you think society has become a bit more accommodating to those who have, are just more needy? And not in the sense of you know having a disability, but just be this this sense of neediness. You know, I need you to you know give me a an hour of coffee break because I just have to you know gather my thoughts and yeah. go back. I mean, do you see that? Um, I I would so the students that we serve don't have that luxury. Oftentimes, they they they've not had that experience. They've been more much more self sufficient. Even the ones that have your traditional so-called family structure, usually the top of that structure is a little bit dysfunction, sure. dysfunctional. So they've had to survive and they've had to be independent, independent thinkers. They've had to find their own means for getting through the days oftentimes. And, you know, that's, you know, it's a, a bit of a stereotype, but that's what we're dealing here with. And that, here. does that build character? It, I think it does. I think it builds character. I think it builds fortitude. And we take that into account. So students come here and they have to test on a basic skills test to get into various levels of college. And I've always said, you know, the student that might be marginally deficient, we want to take into consideration that they've got this character, that they've balanced life, that they've managed their, you know, their brothers and sisters, or they've had to deal with the vicissitudes of life. Mm -hmm at a very young age, and I think that same quality and skill will enable them to overcome whatever academic deficiencies they may have, and we need to give them a chance and support them to, you know, to get through successfully. So I don't think that that kind of, um, you know, advocacy, I'm looking for a better term, but I don't, I don't think that they've had, you know, that, that type of luxury or privilege um, whereby, um, you know, they've been able to take advantage of op opportunities um, of, of individuals saying that, you know, <laughs> I, I, don't th I just don't think they've had the, the opportunity to, to take advantage of, you know, what you've described in sure, terms sure. of being. Um, or maybe, how about this, in a general sense, some suggest that the, as a result partially of parental involvement, that getting a high school degree somehow is easier than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. I, I, is, our, is our education being dumbing, dumbed down to make sure that down? kids get more A's? No, I don't think it's being dumbed down. I, th I think, you know, there's always a little bit of that in the mix, but I think the broader problem has to do with, you know, some of the social economic factors that go into a large public institution. Um, you know, the advantages of being in a school system where the student-to-teacher ratio is much lower than what you have here in Philadelphia I think are, are extreme, and the outcomes are, are pretty self-evident. Um, I think the quality of the buildings 
you know, the quality of the resources. Um, I think, you know, I'm a proponent of, um, I'm, a, I'm, a, um, I'm against the idea of property-based taxes paying for the school district. Yeah, because it's funny how the cheaper taxes, real estate taxes, are usually in the better quote unquote school districts because there's more money there, there's more industry to support the schools and so the, the, the richer families get right. a, ta a tax break basically. Right. There's, a, there's, a, there's a larger tax break and I think the public schools are a result, the quality, the qualitative nature of the public schools are a result of that tax break and I don't think you can, I don't think you can ignore that fact. And then there are other, other well, factors. Before you move on to another point, do you think it should be a state income tax to pay for schools? Um, I think, I know in Jersey, I don't, I don't think the same is the, sh the same with, um, you know, this whole concept of thorough and efficient education. States have a responsibility. And, of course, that's a political debate. Sure. <laughs> I do believe, yes, I do believe that the states have the ultimate responsibility of ensuring a qualitative, a quality education. And to level um, the playing field and across the, the state. Field. You can't go by, by the taxes of a particular residence. Um, you know, Philadelphia has a lot of services it has to provide compared mm -hmm. to, you know, some of the places that are in the more rural areas. Every area. student so is more expensive. Every student is a, it's more expensive. So I think in that sense, you know, the pressure to get students through can result, I don't want to use the term dumbing down, <laughs> but I think it can result in diverting and um, reducing teachers. the quality. You know, I think there's, there's some of that because there's so much pressure on test results, mm -hmm. as you know. Um, there's so much pressure on graduation rates. Um, but I do think there's, you know, there's a lot of quality going on. You know, that school across the street, Masterman, is always up in the top sure. four or five schools in, in the state. So I think the, um, you know, the, you know there, are, there is evidence that public education in a large urban environment can work. But you've got all kinds of other things that go along in the picture that you can't tease out. And they're... You know, the city has got 26% poverty rate. The children, <laughs> from they go to school family, hungry. They go, they go to school hungry. They're in the school districts. They can't afford, you know, a lot of the uh, um, amenities that go along with being um, a, a rising student in a learning environment. Um, they may or may not have parents that support them. You know, I, my son is very fortunate. He's got two professional parents who, you know, are right there every day. But many kids don't have that. Um, you have, you have um, the high levels of parents that are in some level connected to the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole, you know, the, the numbers of, of um, returning citizens that are out there trying, struggling. So I think it's a, a, a you know, a, a mixture of factors that go into bringing the quality down. But at the same time, the administration and the faculty, you know, they're really trying to push up against that. And, you know, do they turn a blind eye to the most perfect result on a test or the most perfect outcome on a, a particular learning, learning outcome? You know, that, that could be the case in some instances, and you, you spread that across the, across the city. A conclusion could be that there's a little bit of water in there. Okay, gas. okay. <laughs> I have some kind of more rapid-fire questions. Okay. What's the greatest skill you need to succeed? And maybe something that can be applied to just about anything. The greatest skill? Um, I think you hit on a little bit of it. I think good English skills, good writing skills. Right. English. Yeah. <laughs> you know, English English as a general education, not necessarily a discipline. Um, I think you have to be able to speak. You have to be able to write, communicate. That gets you through a lot of things. And I think good speaking, writing, reading skills can enable you to solve problems and, you know, spread into other areas sure. if you choose to do that. Okay. What college degrees, majors should be more popular that are not? Um, obviously, the STEM fields. Um, I think 
that as a society, we don't put enough of an emphasis in STEM, science, even though it's all around us. Um, we've, we've partitioned it off as a standalone discipline, and I don't, I don't think we've found a way to teach it where it's inspiring and to show that it's connected to our life and the world around us. Unlike other cultures, you know, we have students who come from some, I don't want to say third world, but places like India and, you know, I'm, maybe I'm stereotyping. Emerging, emerging countries. Emerging yeah. countries where they're just, the students are phenomenal. That's all they want to know. And, and math and science is a language. We don't look at it as a language. It is a language. It's an expression and understanding of the physical world and the physical yeah, properties math, around yeah, us. Everyone can understand, you know, no matter what language you speak. Right, right. And it's, it's symbols. So we don't teach it as a symbol, as a language to understand the world around us. We teach it as a one-dimension abstraction. And that's, okay. that's been, I think, part of the problem. So it's, it's a universal problem in this country. When you look at the numbers worldwide, the United States really doesn't do well in those fields, and we need to do better. Which college degrees should be less popular? Where are, where are we overloading? <laughs> um, hmm, good question. I don't want to say English because I just said it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think... How about... I think... Like, I, you hear a lot of people getting into this analytics field. Do you feel like there's too much of a push to try and solve everything through analytics and not through... I don't know if it would be sort of just a, a decision-making, internal decision-making process. Like you can just take baseball as a, right. one of the first right. examples to really emerge with Moneyball. Right. Um, so I think the larger problem is the proliferation of disciplines. I think something Ooh, like analytics okay. or you know, many of the math, there needs to be much more integration, much more of an interdisciplinary approach towards, towards life. Um, and what happens is you have PhDs in everything. So the PhDs, they come to college and they create their own little sliver of, mm -hmm. of expertise or specialization, and it then becomes a program. And then, you know, it's not really attached to anything in sure. particular. So we're teaching that particular sliver of knowledge. I think the students that come out of there are somewhat, you know, somewhat restricted in what they could do. If everyone um, so has a PhD, then there are no PhDs. There is, yeah, and, and, you know, there is a school of thought that that's part of, to get back to the public education mm -hmm. issue, that all the best, the best and the brightest are going into higher ed graduate school to specialize in some narrow sliver of knowledge as opposed to becoming teachers in the broad fields of mm -hmm. knowledge mm -hmm. and learning that is needed in the public schools. That's not to say the public school teachers are the fault, so please don't quote me there. <laughs> but I do think there is that argument that the proliferations of doctorate degrees and PhDs in this, this country um, is part of the problem. It has inflated what's genuine, what's, you know, what's, um, you know, genuine, genuinely important to the life of our society. That's the beauty of a podcast. You can actually explain yourself. It's yeah. not like a 10-second soundbite <laughs> that people can Hopefully misunderstand. It so make sure you listen to this whole thing, all right? I want to talk. I know that this is not an issue here, but the legacy. You know, I went to Harvard. My son you gets did. an easier admission. I did not, but just uh, <laughs> as an example. I went to the University of Delaware. Uh, so then my, my son has a better chance of getting into Harvard. And this has created an issue with admissions. You know, you have the, the, the court case with Harvard. Um, should the legacy be eliminated and moving the merit uh, side of things up a little higher in admission? I don't think it should be eliminated. I think that's an extreme. But I think it should be less of a consideration relative to um, 
demerit. So that's my professional opinion. My social justice opinion is that the emphasis on selectivity in Harvard, Penn, and you know, the, the Ivy League academics, yeah. Right, I think is part of the problem as well. You know, I think it only exacerbates, I know this is gonna be very controversial, I think it exacerbates the wealth equity gap that we have in this country. You know, if you're, if you're tied into whether it's a parent or a community or a school district that really prepares you for the best, you know, for the, the Ivy League schools, that that only, you know, it, it becomes it becomes self-fulfilling. You ways. win the lottery basically at birth. You win it at birth, right. Um, now, you know, of course, the controversy of people stacking the decks for the, so that the kids can get into these high-tier um, universities, you know, speaks volumes to where we are as a nation and putting the, so much of an emphasis on getting into these these um, institutions. But I think, especially the Ivies, were born out of a very elite, very exclusive society where only the wealthy white men went to school. Women didn't go, and I think there's certain elements of that that still are pervasive in those colleges and universities, both in times, both in ter both in terms of what it takes to get in there. I think. Amy Goodman, but I think Penn's um, admissions is 5%, 6%, single digits, whatever it is. Um, and I believe that education should be f the benefit, should be the means by which society improves itself and makes itself um, you know, equal and provides opportunities and access for, for okay. everyone. So if you want to view them as the best, we have to find ways to make them more less selective than they are so that the diamonds and the roughs can get in there. I always throw Hasim Hardiman out there. I'm gonna owe him a ton, ton of money by the time I get finished using his name. I don't, do you know about him? So he Tell went, me. He went to Temple, he, he went to school. Well, he wanted to go to Temple. He lived right across the street and that was his dream university and Temple wouldn't accept him. So he came here, he got into our honors program, he graduated from here, he went back to Temple and then he became a Rhodes Scholar. He's a Rhodes Scholar. You shouldn't <laughs> great story. It's a great story. Yeah. So that's to me, is the, you know, the prototypical story of a community college as, as well as the prototypical story of having a selective crit criteria, a set of selective criteria that either says yes, yeah, yeah, or nay, nay that you get into this institution. I mean, he was, he clearly had the ability to, to um, he clearly had the ability to He should have gotten function. into Temple. Yeah, he right should have gotten into Temple. He clearly, you know, we're great, but we don't perform magic. You don't become a genius in two years. So he had the ability, and Temple just missed it. Yeah. And I think the I same it, is true with you know, Harvard's, Browns, the Ivy Leagues. I think they're, you, I, I don't understand why you have to be so selective. You know, they must have room, physical room for people well, to come in. Most of these institutions can give fr out free tuition for decades and still have yeah, plenty yeah, of endowment absolutely, money. Absolutely, left. absolutely. And, and it becomes self-perpetuating. So. You know, a place like Community College of Philadelphia, you know, we're not getting those million dollar <laughs> gifts from graduates of CCP, which is the case in Penn, Harvard, Stanford, and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, it's a snowball situation. It, it, right, it's snowballing effect, yeah. you know, exactly. And I think, you know, when you add to that 400 years, 300 years or whatever it is of history, it's just- Hard to beat. It's hard to beat, yeah. yeah. So you're a leader of an enormous organization. Mm -hmm. How do you, and this is a, sort of a, a management question, how do you get people to do something they may not necessarily want to do? How do you motivate? Uh, it ain't easy. <laughs> <laughs> you try to lead, you try to have a vision, 
and you try to craft a vision that has an element of practicality related to what we represent and try to do as an institution. And you try to draw a connection between our institution and the needs of the community and the communities that we serve. And you try to enable that vision to, you know, to have some relevance to the life of some of the things we're doing and how that can ultimately enable us to reach our goal of providing opportunity, access, social justice to the community. So it's about creating a vision. Um, I think the vision needs to be tied to some specific goals and objectives. Um, I think you have to articulate that vision on a regular basis. You have to be, you have to craft a level of credibility by being being there and, and you know being on the front lines as much as you can. Um, I think you know I try to have direct communications with staff, faculty, students, and the community. So you have many audiences, and I think the totality of your efforts um, can hopefully inspire enough people whereby they follow you on their own, and you're not forcing anyone to 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 to, um, to follow you. So unlike um, you know other places, other organizations, other institutions where by virtue of your position, you have a command, you know, you're able to put on command performances and people are supposed to follow. Um, in my case, I think you have to, you know, you can put on a command performance, but you can only hope that people will be willing to follow you. And, um, and then you throw into the mix, you know, contract negotiations and a whole lot of other things and it can, it can tamper down, it can distort, it can divert, but I think Ultimately, you have to look at the total picture and see where you're moving, how you're moving, what kind of responses you're getting from students, what your outcomes are, how the community is responding to you, and you, you come away with a, an assessment of how well you're able to be th that leader. I hear from some leaders that sometimes it can be very lonely being on the top. Everyone thinks, oh, you're on the top, well, everyone loves you, and everyone wants it. but it can be very lonely in the decision-making process and just the whole idea of what you're doing. So how do you deal with that part of it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's lonely, and you're always taking risk. I mean, you're, 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 it's lonely because you're taking risk. <laughs> you know, and as you take risk, um, you know, you're alienating a lot, of, a lot of people sometimes, sometimes half the audience that you're, that you're um, communicating to. And so... How do you deal with it? You have to have, you have, to have um, other aspects of your life that you enjoy. Um, having a great family and wife, somebody you can go that home helps. to, that <laughs> helps. Um, having other interests helps. Um, I'm not a one-beat pony. I, I, this is my profession, and I think I have the best profession. You know, I built this to be the profession that I love. You know, you hear the anecdote that if you don't want to work, get a job that you love, and that's, that's really what I feel like. I have a job that I love. And, my personal, social, professional are all embedded in this job, as well as the ones before. As a vice president, it's, it's the same thing. Uh, but certainly as a president. Um, so I think having other interests, you know, constantly keep renewing your, your energy, constantly finding um, new values and ideas relative to what you're doing. So reading, you have to read a lot. Um, I'm not the smartest person. There are people that are out there writing some incredible things about life and society and higher education. So I think renewing your, your own sense of, um, of life and philosophy and ideas is part of how you constantly um, rejuvenate your, your, your ideas. And I think that helps. Um, you come in on any given day and you feel like, let's turn the page. I got new ideas. Let's go in a different direction. And I think that right away <laughs> raises the energy level up. But I think if you go into it knowing that it can be lonely, 
it, it's not lonely. I think I think Shannon likes me. <laughs> That's right. Um, I think I think there are enough people that um, support what I'm what I'm doing and what we're doing and the direction that and you know that you know I don't have to state it but you kind of you kind of get it and I think that gets you through. One more question. Okay. Do you have a favorite teacher? And All along, you know, a teacher that you had as a student. Um, do I have to name one? Let me name two. Sure. Okay. Two. Um, so, and it's funny, I'm going to name two because one of them, who's 90 years old, contacted me. She's retired, been retired. She's writing a book, and somehow she found me <laughs> and asked if I would, like, give some stories. And, uh -huh. But Miss Ruth, Dr. Ruth Carter Hayes in Patterson, New Jersey, which is where I'm from, yeah. um, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I had her. And of course, still contact her. Or well, she's she still contacting me. You. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I hadn't heard from her in 50 years. Wow. Um, but she found she got in touch with some of the other classmates, and she contacted me. And you know, at the time, she was one of these teachers where, when I found out I had her again, I hated, I hated her. I was like, you got to be kidding me, not again. But she was the teacher that would walk me home if if I got a C. She would walk me home and explain that seat to my mother, and you know she kept me close to to her her breast at that she time. She cared. She cared, and at that time, growing up in Patterson, New Jersey, there were probably five or six of us who were hanging out. We played football. We did a lot of things, and I would say out of the five or six, there's probably two of us that are still living. The other ones who weren't in her orbit got into all kinds of really bad things early, 13 years old, 14 year olds. Um, you met drugs. her just at the right time. I though. met her. At, not that I would have gotten into sure, drugs because sure. my parents would have hammered me, but <laughs> um, I think she made a difference in keeping me on the on the right path. Mm -hmm. So when I went into high school, you know, high school was foundational to what you ultimately do in life, and I think she made a difference. That's neat. And then the second person was Dr. Dan Tanner, um, who was my dissertation advisor at Rutgers um, at a time when I was struggling with standardized tests to get into the doctoral program. You know, he, he knew what my skill abilities were. I had taken class with him. And he went to bat for me real in, in, a, in a very important way. And um, I think my understanding of progressive education and the relationship between education and society and the needs and interests of the students were um, very clearly described for me. And that's kind of the driving philosophy that I have right now. So Dr. Dan Tanner, Rutgers University, um, Graduate School of Education and um, Dr. Ruth Hayes. I hope they're both listening right now. Yeah. Oh, hi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Dr. Donald Generals right here on the True Philadelphia podcast. Thank you, Dr. Generals. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate your time. Our thanks to Dr. Generals for his time. Thanks for listening to the True Philadelphia podcast. We have so many more episodes worth your time featuring the people who are moving and shaking and advancing the Philadelphia region. So please subscribe and pass this along to any of your friends who love podcasts. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Stay true, Philadelphia.